today on Divine Truth Podcast. Listen, I'm not telling you to rejoice because your car broke down. I'm not, listen, I'm not telling you to rejoice because you've got cancer or a loved one's got cancer. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you that the only cure for that type of heartache and that type of fear is to keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ and not your circumstances. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Philippians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 14. Where the Apostle Paul says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would make your word clear to us today. Truly, we pray, Father, speak to us, O Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Things in life that are not proven by what we say. They are proven by other factors. If I tell you, for example, that I'm a Christian, then there will be evidences of that proclamation. And if those evidences are not present within my life, then you would begin to question the veracity of what I am saying. And of this fact, Jesus Christ could not be any more clear. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 16, Jesus says, You shall know them by their what, church? Fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And then Christ exclaims these attention-getting words in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, where he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? 
And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And, the, and notice in that text, folks, that of all the points that Christ is making, one of those points he's making is this, that just because a person says they are a believer, just because a person may go through the motions, true salvation is evidenced by fruit. And I've had people come to me several times and say, Pastor, how long are you going to harp on the fact of what are the evidences of salvation? And I told that person, or those couple people have asked me, in Christian and pastoral love, of course, I said, the moment you stop accrediting salvation to people that are clearly not saved is when I'll do it. As long as God's people are accrediting salvation to people who are clearly by their fruits not saved, you need to still keep hearing the message. The salvation by profession alone is not salvation, but it is by fruit being born in their life. And just as there are evidences of salvation, there are also evidences of sanctification. Evidences that you and I are working out what God has implanted in us. And I believe that the following text in verses 14 to 18 are crystal clear about some of the evidences that take place in our life when the process of sanctification is at work. We live in a society that is a very complaining society, don't we? And I really believe that we are breeding a generation of complainers that seem to get worse and worse with every passing generation. And as I said to you on a number of occasions, and I'll say to you again, it is a curiosity to me that we live in one of the most indulgent societies, but yet we live in one of the most discontent societies. That the more people have, the more they seem to be discontent with what they have. And the more they have, the more they complain about what they have. Oh, this minivan only has 16 cup holders. Why couldn't it have 20? My computer is only got, I'll, I'll admit it, my computer has only got 8 gigs of RAM, but my mother-in-law's has got 16. I'm jealous. For those of you who don't understand that, doesn't matter. And of course, our culture, over, this overindulgent culture, culture of childish kind of adults complain about everything. Nothing is ever enough. Nothing is ever good enough. We complain about our jobs. We complain about our church. We complain about our, I know you don't do this, preachers or get complained about. I don't get complained about until after this morning. You complain about your spouse. You complain about your kids. Nothing is ever enough. Nothing is ever good enough. And that is why we have a whole society of critical of a critical mentality constantly attacking everything and unfortunately that attitude has wormed its way into the church hasn't it and that brings us to the part of the first part of the portion of scripture and the first evidence of sanctification that takes place in a person's life 
If, if the process of sanctification is really taking place in our life, folks, just like salvation has evidences, sanctification is also going to have evidences. And I believe that the following text, verses 14 to 18, are crystal clear about some of the evidences that we have. We want to notice four main headings as we look at what are the evidences of salvation. First of all, it's evidenced by our attitude in verse 14. Second, it's evidenced by our actions in the, in the first part of or in, the, in verse 15. Third, it's evidenced by our attention in verse 16. And fourth is evidenced by our appetite in verses 17 and 18. And we want to break down these, these verses for you in these four headings to really discover what Paul is saying after he got off that long talk about the working of God in your life and becoming sanctified because it goes all the way back to verse 5. Now he says, if this is true in your life, church, then this is going to be some of the evidences. Now, of course, he doesn't give us an all-inclusive list. But these four are some good indicators about whether the process of sanctification is really at work in your life. Number one, what is the number one evidence of sanctification that you and I are working out what God implanted in us? Number one, it is evidenced by your attitude. If your attitude stinks, it's because at least at that moment, the process of sanctification has gone impotent. As with anything in the Christian life, church, you know this is true. As with everything in the Christian life, it all begins with attitude. Attitude determines action. Outlook determines outcome. It all begins with attitude. And as we work out our salvation in this process of salvation, we begin to show the evidences that that's taking place by our attitude. Look what Paul says in verse number 14. Do all things without murmuring. Stop right there. Do all things without murmurings. Believers are never sanctified if their attitude is one of complaining and finding fault with everything. Because true sanctification, church, has its proof in the attitudes that people have. And the attitudes that you and I have will be displayed very, very quickly. Many of us don't have a good poker face, do we? Many Christians are able to show on their facial expressions the attitude that is in their heart. Negatively speaking, the basic attitude, folks, that exists is when, when someone is working out their salvation is not to be murmuring and not to be complaining. But then on the other hand, positively, as the Apostle Paul emphasizes all throughout this letter, that our attitudes have much to do with our focus on Christ. Much of our attitude has to do with whether or not we have the attitude of rejoicing in the Lord. And this is a recurring theme throughout this letter. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will. 
In Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Philippians chapter 2, verse 18, for the same cause also do we joy and rejoice with me. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, therefore my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And all throughout this letter, the theme is rejoicing in the Lord. And if the theme is rejoicing in the Lord, and rejoicing in the Lord is really the attitude of a Christian's life, then a complaining heart will not be there because a complaining heart is not a heart that's rejoicing in the Lord. But on the contrary, a heart that is truly rejoices is not going to be a heart that murmurs and complains. Please note with me what Paul says we're to rejoice in. In Philippians, again, chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so many people categorize what they're joyful over based upon their circumstances. But Paul doesn't say in that verse, church, to rejoice in your circumstances. That's not Paul's command. In fact, we're, we're told not only not to rejoice in our circumstances, he, says don't, he also says don't rejoice in spite of your circumstances. He says what, church? He says rejoice in the Lord because it's all a matter of focus. Because most of the time if we focus on our circumstances, we're not going to find reasons to rejoice. That's why our focus needs to be on the Lord. It's a classic example in the Gospels. Remember Peter was walking on the water and he was walking to Christ and the waves were coming and the winds were howling. There was a huge storm on the Sea of Galilee there and he sees Jesus coming. He hops out of the boat and begins to walk on the water to Jesus. And as Peter's beginning to walk on the water to Jesus, as he keeps his focus on Christ, he is walking along the tops of the water. But the moment Peter takes his eyes off the Lord Jesus Christ and begins to look at the howling wind and the waves around him, what begins to happen? He begins to sink and the Lord has to come over and rescue Peter, bring him up out of the water and looks at Peter and says, where is your faith? Because the moment Peter took his eyes off of Christ, he began to sink. And folks, listen, the moment we take our eyes off of Christ and begin not to rejoice just in the Lord, we begin to sink and we begin to have horrible attitudes. Listen, I'm not telling you to rejoice because your car broke down. I'm not, listen, I'm not telling you to rejoice because you've got cancer or a loved one's got cancer. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you that the only cure for that type of heartache and that type of fear is to keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ and not your circumstances. And folks, listen, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to do that. Because those waves are big. Those waves are big. That wind is real ferocious. And it blows and it does its damage without, without empathy. And I recognize and I realize it's hard. But if we're going to keep proper attitudes that are going to be the evidence of the process of salvation working in our life, then folks, listen, we've got to rejoice in the Lord. We've got to keep the focus there. Because the person who is working out the salvation, the focus is going to be on Christ because he's going to be the one that fixes their attitude. 
I sat, by my, I sat by my grandmother's bedside as she went out into eternity, as she went to heaven. She literally died in my wife's arms and went out into eternity. I sat by the bedside of one of my best friends in the whole world and watched him die of cancer. But we can't, I couldn't focus on that. I had to look, and his daughters that are here with us this morning had to look past that to where their daddy was going. I had to look past that to where my grandmother was going. Blue had to look past that to where his mama was going. Bonnie's had to look past that to where her family was going because that's the only way you keep your spiritual sanity, church. It's to rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoice in your circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord. And when the focus is on the Lord, when our focus is truly on the Lord, Our attitude does not murmur. Our attitude is not one of complaining. Because the evidence of sanctification reveals itself in our attitude. The apostle uses two words here that picture the one that is not working out their salvation. I want you to notice what they are there in verse 14. He says, do all things without murmuring. And that's murmuring there is probably, when I was studying Greek in college and seminary, this was probably came to be one of my favorite Greek words. I have several favorite Greek words. I like moros, which is the, which is the English equivalent to moron. I like that one. There's the Greek word skubalon. I, I like that one. And then there's this one. The murmur. It's the Greek word gongusmos. Isn't that a good one? Gongusmos. Yeah, German for moron. And that word is used four times in the New Testament. Two times it's translated grumbling. Two times it's translated complain. And literally what the Greek word gongusmos means, it's an utterance in a low tone. It's that, it speaks about that behind the scenes talk. You know, when your mama tells you something you don't want to do and you walk off and you're such a jerk. That's the gongusmas. I know y'all young people have never done that. It's that, it's that low tone voice that people use when things aren't going their way. It's that low tone of, of complaining. And if you do that, the Bible says that's an indication that the process of sanctification has not reached its full plateau. It's gone kind of stagnant. In fact, if you think about it, the word gongusma sounds exactly like the low tone utterings of disgruntled people. So in the future, instead of just walking off Raynella and saying what's really on your mind, you say, oh, gongusmas. If I hear, and if I hear a bunch of you all using the term, if I hear a bunch of gongusmosses going on, I know I got a bunch of unsanctified people. It is usually the negative response to something unpleasant, something inconvenient, or something disappointing. And really, church, it arises from a self-centered notion that whatever is happening to you is undeserved. A related verb to this It's found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 11, 
It says, when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house. This is talking about the ones that received the same amount of money as the ones who worked very much later in the day. And what happened is they agreed to a certain amount of money. And grace is always superabounding to whoever God gives it to, right? There is no limit on the grace of God to whomever receives it. And so the ones who worked eight hours received the same amount of pay as the ones who worked an hour if you remember the story, and what, and what did the ones that worked a whole lot longer began to do? They began to get in their little corners together, and they began to gongus moss. But sorry, going on here. <laughs> it's the same word that's used by the Pharisees uh, of, at grumbling at Jesus Christ in Luke chapter five and verse thirty. But their scribes and Pharisees gongus moss against the disciples, saying, "Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners?" It was also used. Uh, of certain professing disciples of Christ who complained at the words of Christ in, in John chapter 6 and verse 53, where then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. And then in verse 61, the Bible says, When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples, what? That's not right. Disciples, what? Gongusmas at him. Jesus says, what? Why does this offend you? Paul used this term of certain Israelites in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, neither gongusmashi, as some of them also gongusmashed and were destroyed of the destroyer. If you don't remember anything else when you leave here this morning, Garrett, you're going to remember gongusmash. Speaking in low tones, church. Speaking in low tones of discontent. We call it in our terminology, Nathan, speaking on talking under your breath. That's antithetical to sanctification. That murmuring, that complaining, because something has happened to make me dissatisfied. Something has happened to make me discontent. Something has happened that is not fair to me. And then we go off and we go into, in those low, quiet, under-your-breath tones, we begin to murmur about whatever's happening. I think it's very helpful that we understand this, that when we do that, where the murmuring is really aimed. You may believe that when you walk away from your parents, young people, who have given you an order that you don't want to obey. I mean, heaven help us. No one should have to be made to clean their room. So when you walk away, what are y'all two looking at each other for? So when, so when you young people walk away at an order that your mom or dad had given you, you may believe, and adults do it too, you may believe that you are grumbling against that person of which you disapprove of what they're telling you to do. But that's not so. Because if we truly believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, that he orders all things whatsoever comes to pass, then our murmuring is not against the one to whom brought the discontent, but our murmuring is against the Lord. The psalmist observed that you cannot murmur, church, and listen to the Lord at the same time. In Psalm 106 verse 25. But murmured in their tents. And hearkened not unto the voice of the Lord. They didn't hearken to the voice. Or they didn't obey the voice. Because they didn't hear the voice. Because they could not hear the voice of the Lord. Because they were so busy complaining about everything else that was going on around them. 
Oh, I don't have any bread. And we don't have any water. And we walk around in the wilderness, folks, in the dry, barren desert for years because we just won't stop complaining. We walk around in the barren desert for years with the process of sanctification stagnant because we feel so hurt that somebody would dare expect that of me or they would dare say that to me or dare do that to me. I told somebody just this week, they came up to me and they were, they were getting me a litany of things that people had done to them. And I was like, I thought to myself, great day, fellow, you got, you got issues. If all those people have done all that stuff to you, you don't have a, you truly don't have a friend in the world. But he began to complain to me and, and I began to show him from scripture where, where his, his first and number one problem was not that what the people have done to him, but his number one problem was that he did not have a forgiving heart. And then I began to show him from the word of God and from especially the book of Philemon how God, how no no one has ever done anything to you that's worse than what you've done to Jesus Christ. And he forgave you all. So you are expected and commanded to forgive others in return and not complain. The apostle James gives a wonderful picture of a, a, a wonderful deterrent to murmuring in James chapter five, verse nine, grudge not against one another. It's kind of the same idea, isn't it? Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Why? The judge standeth at the door. There's something right now. If I knew that Jesus Christ was on the other side of the door listening to me and was about to come into the room, it might change the way I act. If you knew Jesus, listen, it is, uh, I better not tell you the time. You won't know how long I've got left. If you knew, it's 1204. If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back at 1206, it may change the way that you act, wouldn't it? Guess what, folks? Jesus Christ's return is imminent. He may come back at 12.06. He may walk through that. He may split that eastern sky, and he may walk through that door. And James says, listen, you better be careful about the grumbling and the complaining you do because the judge is standing at the door ready to walk through it. And that judge, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, use hospitality one to another without what? Grudging. Grudging. How are, how are you doing, folks, in those low tones of dissatisfaction that we like to do so much? That we believe that we're directing to the person, but we're really directing them to the Lord. Those, those low tones of disapproval that, are, again, that are completely antithetical to true sanctification. How do you know if the process of sanctification is active in, you, that you, active in your life, that you are working out what's been planted in you? What's your attitude? Your attitude, is an, your attitude is an indication. Your attitude is an indication. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at verse 14 again. Not only do all things without gongusmas, but do all things without disputing. Do all things without disputing. And we move from the natural path, from the undertones to the silent undertones which are as we've said a, a, an indication of a lack of sanctification that are not dealt with if they're not dealt with and surrendered to the lord to free words of disputing god calls us folks to have a life free of disputing because let me tell you something that's going to happen you can use those low verbal tones of discontent but for so long 
And if those low-tone verbal discontents are not surrendered, repented, and surrendered to the Lord, the day is going to come where those, that murmuring is going to turn into disputes. What do you mean, Pastor? The day is going to come where those low tones of disapproval, those low tones of discontent, that grumbling and complaining within yourself, one day is going to come out and you're just going to flat go off on the person that you blame for your discontent. And that's why Paul says, you do everything, everything you do, do it without complaining, do it without arguing. First Timothy chapter two, verse eight, Paul says this, I will therefore that men pray at where? Everywhere. Lifting up holy hands without, without what? You know what that word means? It's the same Greek words found in our text. Means without arguing. If I gave you a, if I gave you a piece of paper this morning and I had you to write down what you think the number one thing right now that evangelical Christians argue about, what would you write down? I don't know what you'd write down, but you want to know what the latest survey said that the number one thing that most evangelical Christians in the church argue about? Can you guess it? Money. Money. Doesn't take a rocket scientist from Harvard to figure that out either, does it? Money. Christians arguing and those low disgruntled tones of discontent and dissatisfaction over money. People leaving churches over money. But yet when look at you and say that they're right with the Lord. Exactly. Murmuring is emotional. Disputing is intellectual. You say, what do you mean? You spend so much time murmuring, you spend so much time emotionally convincing yourself that you're right, and then comes the intellectual explaining to the other person of why you're right. I've held this grudge against you for months. Now let me explain to you why I have. We not only do it to each other, but we also do it to God, don't we? We grumble in those low tones of dissatisfaction and discontent and disapproval to God. And ultimately, folks, what happens is our complaining, our gongoose moss gets a little louder. And we convinced ourselves emotionally that we're right and God is wrong. You say, well, pastor, I would never tell God he was wrong. Yeah, right. We all do it, don't we? When you think that you've got a better way, in other words, when you go off and do your own thing without seeking the advice of God, what has that shown? That has shown that you had a better way than God and God was wrong and you were right. We need to live, folks, in the reality that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is truly in heaven. But listen, we live in a fallen world, and we live in unredeemed bodies. And the, and the Lord oftentimes leads believers through times of trials and testing. But he also warns us we can expect persecution because of our faithfulness. And it is therefore, church, inevitable that circumstances in our life will not always be favorable or pleasant. 
But how we deal with that, folks, is the issue of our sanctification. Listen, it's nothing wrong with you just because you're going through a tough time. Just because you're going through a trial doesn't mean God's ugly with you. Doesn't mean he's angry with you. Doesn't mean you're out of fellowship. But your fellowship with God and your sanctification is determined upon how we deal with it. What is our attitude when God does it? That's why Paul says do all things without groaning, without complaining, and without arguing. Because those is, that is going to be the number one determiner of the level of your sanctification. The Apostle Paul gave up all his worldly advantages. Notice what he says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. How? I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, and blameless. But notice what he says. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And he counted it, not a, com not a time to complain, but he counted a great privilege to be imprisoned for the Lord. Remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas had been dra literally dragged into prison uh, by their bootstraps. I mean, they were, they were out doing uh, evangelism. Uh, the demonic girl got saved. The, her, her owners lost their livelihood of telling the future. They got all the society all in an uproar. And so they threw Paul and Silas in prison. And when you come to the middle part of chapter 16, it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas gungusmossed in prison. No, it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas sang praises to God. And folks, listen, I believe with all my heart that the fact that Paul and Silas were in a trial and were in temptation and were not in a pleasant place, they were, their hands and their feet were in stocks, chained to a wall. And I believe with all my heart the fact that they were singing praises to God in the middle of that led to the Philippian jailer saying, what must I do to be saved? Maybe if you and I complain a little less in front of unsaved people, maybe those unsaved people will look at us and say, what must I do to be saved? But when those unsaved people don't see any difference in us and we complain about our jobs and our society and our wives and our husbands and our kids and our vehicles and our houses just as much as they do, why would they want what we've got? And that's why Paul is very clear that one of the number one evidences that sanctification, that you are working out what God has implanted, is in your attitude. And because Paul's attitude was in line with the working of God in his life, he could say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 that I want to know him. I want to know him in two ways. Everybody wants to know him in the first way. Man, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Man, that's me. Man, I want the power of God upon my life right but Paul didn't stop there and also want the fellowship of his what sufferings you see folks you don't think that you're sanctified just because you believe that the power of God is working through you because sanctification happens when you not only want the power but you're willing to accept the suffering that goes along with it it's really easy for people in the church to say, yes, I want the power of Christ resting on me. I want, I want the miracle-working power of God to flow through me. But it's not quite as easy for people to say, 
yeah, I, I would count it a privilege to be thrown in prison for Jesus Christ. That's not quite as easy, is it? That's, and that's tough for us all. Because every believer has been, has been given the wonderful advantage of suffering for Christ, right? That's why Paul says in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 29, for, it is, for unto you it is what? Given. You know, somebody asked me sometimes, pastors, there's things you don't need to pray for. Yeah, there's things, you know that, there's things that you don't need to pray for. You don't need to pray for trials. Why? Because Paul says they're already given. It's just part of the deal. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe. So I've been given the ability to believe. It's not in me. I've been given the ability to believe, and I've been given the honor of suffering for his sake. Every circumstance of life is to be accepted willingly and joyfully without murmuring, without complaining, without disappointment, much less resentment. I wonder how many of us, if we were truly honest before the Lord this morning, would say, Pastor, I'm living in resentment against God because of things that, has happened, that have happened in my life. And you feel justified to live in that resentment. Folks, listen, there is no exception in anything in our life, and there is no exception for any person. For those who are working out what God has implanted within, there should never be either the emotional grumbling or the intellectual argument. And it is always sinful for believers to complain about anything that the Lord calls them or does in their life. Because anything that's come about in your life, folks, comes about in your life by the direct sovereignty of God. Whether it is difficult or whether it is easy. Now folks, let me tell you something. If what came about in your life wasn't by the direct sovereignty of God, then you would have reason to complain. Because then it would be purposeless. But everything, good or bad, that happens in our life is brought about by the absolute direct sovereignty of God. And so therefore we need to have the attitude that trusts that. Nathan gave a testimony on Wednesday. Nathan and Janie gave a testimony on Wednesday. It was a precious testimony about God meeting their needs. But sometimes it's, trust, it's tough to trust. It is. It's tough to trust. Does God always come through? He always has in my life. That doesn't mean God always came through the way I wanted him to. But God always comes through. Negative attitudes, folks, are always forbidden. Philippians 4, for example, Paul says in verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. For I have what? It's not osmosis. It's sanctification. It's the process. And Paul says, I have learned that whatsoever state I am, yeah, even in Kansas. No, that's the wrong state. Whatsoever state I am, therewith to be what, church? Content. And content people don't gongoose moss. I know both how to be abased. This is what he learned. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. Steve Lawson said this. The all things that the Christian is to do is a broad, 
all-inclusive statement that encompasses all things that God calls us to do in our lives at home, work, school, church, and play. And in all areas of marriage, parenting, friendship, and ministry, there is nothing that is not included in this phrase. There's nothing in our lives that we are to complain and murmur against God about. And what's the first evidence that in your life is being worked out what God has implanted in you? What's your attitude like? Because your attitude is going to be evidence of the process of sanctification in your life. Folks, let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have the evidence in your life the process, that the process of sanctification is alive and working? Do you have that evidence in your attitude? Do you complain or do you do all things without murmuring and complaining? Or do you have those low tones of dissatisfaction and disapproval in your life? Church, the process of sanctification is evidenced in the attitudes of your life. What's your attitude? How are you doing? I didn't say that it was determined of whether you were saved. That's a different subject. Paul's point is, is that your sanctification process is displayed in your attitude. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. How are you doing? Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.